America. We are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. There are two kinds of people in this world. Those who don't give a damn about grammar, style, or syntax, and those who write aggrieved letters to publishing houses about split infinitives. My guest today, Benjamin Dreyer, is neither. As the copy chief of Random House, it is his unenviable task to steer the middle way between linguistic pedantry and letting these writers get away with bloody murder. Scratch bloody. Redundancy. Before reading his hilarious and practical new book, Dreyer's English, I think I would have imagined the copy chief of Random House as something like the elegantiae arbiter of ancient Rome, a terrifying absolute authority on questions of grammatical law and taste, the kind of person who walks around waving a scepter at things to be preserved or destroyed. As the book makes plain, however, there is no absolute authority when it comes to either taste or correctness in the English language. Still, Please avoid impactful, utilize, and very unique, and use the Oxford comma, and you can do away with just, really, and actually while you're at it. Welcome to Think Again, Benjamin. Thank you very much. So if we do away with just, really, and actually, there can be no more BuzzFeed headlines. (laughs) I don't police how people speak. Mm. You talk however you want. I talk however I want, and, and, and you will hear me say the word very probably. 20 times in the next, you know, 20 minutes. But the point is that when we're writing, we have the opportunity to sharpen up what we're doing for the best possible impact. It's an old game and it didn't originate with me. I'm sure I must have seen it online at some point. The notion that, for instance, if you're very hungry, you're ravenous. If you're very smart, you're brilliant. If you're very this, you're something else. And go find that really good adjective and grab onto it and make very good use of it. Right. Though I should say, because I really am in favor of as much gray as is reasonably possible when we're talking about our writing. Uh, And for you Americans, that's G-R-A-Y. Yes, please. (laughs) (laughs) My friend, the writer Amy Bloom, once virtually, not actually, smacked me across the hand on my distaste for the word very, and she just said, Benjamin, it's a wonderfully utilitarian, simple little two-syllable intensifier, and sometimes it's just the quiet little thing that you want and you need. And she's right. Very is cute. Actually is cute. Both of them can easily kind of elide into cutesy and remind me of what you were saying about parentheses. I think you called them coy and feckless. Yes. That like, there's all these headlines that say things like, 10 reasons you should actually stop X, Y, and Z. And there it starts to feel really precious and twee. And pointless. Twee is one of my favorite <laughs> Twee words. is a good word. Twee is one of my favorite <laughs> words. I remember the first time I encountered the word twee uh, in some book back in the maybe 1980s. And if I recall correctly, and when I don't recall things correctly, I just make them up. <laughs> um, probably it was being used in reference to a certain kind of intimate little British musical theater endeavor. Okay. Okay. But the thing is, I remember not knowing the word. I'd never seen it before. And I remember going to my dictionary and looking it up. 
and it wasn't there. It was still a British word. Mm. And it did eventually, as we as we well know, it made its way over here and, and really it's got its green card well in hand. We need a word for whatever kind of sort of onomatopoeia that is. The word twee sounds like captures twee. the feeling of tweeness. Yes. But it's not a not onomatopoeia exactly. No, but it's a, it's it's an, it's an exquisite word. <laughs> it it's is. an exquisite word. It is. A, as to as to actually, actually yeah. I learned the extent to which I violently overused it and 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 in fact she will forgive me for this my sister also violently overused <laughs> it when we started hearing out of the mouth of my 2 year old nephew well actually i like peas <laughs> and we were all like huh <laughs> and then i became aware of how often i said that word and and i still say it very often but when i write it it goes gone 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 that it's become the mansplainer word well actually oh yeah that's awful yeah so it's really <laughs> been badly tarred so one is better off truly i think never ever using it. Speaking of mansplaining, I think I laughed for like five straight minutes at, was it Ger Gertrude Stein? Who was it that said, or Virginia Woolf, that Ezra Pound. Stein. Gertrude Stein. Ezra Pound was like a village explainer. Excellent if you were a village, if not, comma, not. You know, I find, <laughs> I find Stein <laughs> as hilarious. a rule. God bless her. Unreadable. Unreadable. <laughs> But when she lands a line, she lands a line. No, that paragraph you quoted of hers, I, I, I was totally shaking my head in bafflement. It was yes, the the unreadable. all right, the the all right paragraph. Yeah, so. and yeah, I mean, I typed it out, and I just keep, you know, I was copying it out of where I found it, and I'm just typing it. I have no idea what any of this means, but it's a very good example of Stein's writing. Yeah, all those brownies, I guess. <laughs> And one other thing I found really interesting that stood out for me in your book is this idea of learning the rhythms of prose by typing out some great prose. Shirley Jackson, who I think in many people's minds is limited to a vague memory of reading the lottery back in seventh grade, in your book emerges as as a hero of prose writing. I mean, you, you really ad admire her style. She is my favorite writer in the English language. And I say the word favorite because I mean favorite, but I do also think she is one of the great prose stylists of the 20th century. Her writing is exquisite. I, like everybody else on earth, read the lottery when I was in high school. And then no doubt I moved on next to The Haunting of Hill House, probably having seen the movie. The Haunting, and then I've been reading, I call her Shirley, I've been reading <laughs> Shirley all the rest of my life, over and over and over again, and I learned so much from her, and I did once, just to see what it felt like, I typed out in full one of her short stories to see whether or not the act of my putting my hands on her prose would make me better understand what was going on, and it did. It did. I just, I learned a lot from the experience. And, and I, I really, I commend it to any writer to pick something that they really like and type it out. Oh, I just used the singular they. God bless me. Unpack that. I'm sorry. I commend any writer to do that if that's something they might enjoy doing. Right, right. You talk about that in the book. And that is, that is a bet noir for all of us who want to 
both not say he all the time or the what is pretty horrible just alternating between he and she it's it's difficult it's tough <laughs> and and the thing is that the the real firebrand champions of the singular they leap into the conversation and they're happy to report the truth, which is that, you know, the singular they has been used in the English language for century after century after century, which is fine, but there needs to be perhaps some sensitivity to the sensibilities of people of a certain age who were raised never, ever, ever to do it. And I remember when I first started copy editing back in the 90s, you began to see that revolt against the ongoing use of the pronoun he in the sense of, well, of course, any normal sort of human being can be characterized as he. Right. And writers were beginning to take exception to that. And you began to see, in fact, the technique of alternating between he and she, which is exhausting, or writing he or she, which is just, just tedious. And there are ways, if you want to edit around that, there are always ways to do it. And of course, you can always take a singular noun like writer and turn it into writers. And well, then you, there you've got a they right there in front of you. I found in copy editing that sometimes my attempt to eliminate a he without resorting to a they when I couldn't do it would lead me to try to figure out how to rework a sentence to get the pronouns out of it altogether. And I often found that I ended up with, a, as far as I was concerned, that I ended up with a stronger sentence. Okay. There are people who will happily say that I'm just wasting my time. I mean, and you can sometimes end up with a much more convoluted sentence, right. I suppose, and, depending on the right. sentence. And you don't want that either. Mm -hmm. Not that anybody's standing around waiting for my blessing. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I bless the use of the singular they. It, it is, as I say in the book, it's not the wave of the future, it's the wave of the present. And one has to just sort of get used to. It. And it solves a multitude of problems now, of course, with people who don't want to be referred to by either he or she. I mean, at one stroke, you've taken care of everyone. And in fact, the thing that really was my breakthrough moment with that was to, at long last, have a colleague whose pronoun of choice was they. Mm -hmm. And I spent a lot longer than I ought to have trying to figure out how to refer to my colleague only by my colleague's name. And after a while, even I thought I sounded like an idiot. <laughs> um, and one day the word they just popped out of my mouth and I was, oh, good, you've grown up. And and the thing is, it, it shouldn't take, you know, when you're trying to be a good person, when you're trying to be a better person all the time, it shouldn't take a specifically personal experience to make you have a realization. But that's how it works. Yeah, for humans, that's yeah. that's what we, you know, that's that's how we learn. Yeah, you know, I mean, that goes for, oh, I, I have a much better experience of gay people, and I, I can say that being a gay people, um, <laughs> now that I actually know one. Um, <laughs> right. And it changes things. It changes things. So we get there, we evolve. You know, what happens is every time you write it, you hear... You imagine your, your mother or somebody reading that sentence and saying, this person doesn't understand English. And then you simply have to say, you know what, mom, I love you, but I'm doing it. Exactly. <laughs> um, there's a number of books I keep at my bedside very late at night when I just want to read for like about 90 seconds as I'm beginning to nod off. I'll reach for something that I've read a thousand times and I just read a paragraph. And, and one of the books that I keep is the Vogue Book of Etiquette 
copyright 1924. Oh, wow. And if you ever want to know about how many servants you need to maintain a good apartment, it will tell you. But the one thing that I find most amusing is that this book, in any reference to infants and children in the singular, always uses the pronoun it. <laughs> wow. I used to teach middle school, and I once was in the library looking through a yearbook that was from, it was like 1910 or something, and the students were classified into various groups, one of which was morons. <laughs> <laughs> it's helpful sometimes to realize sort of how contingent the conventions of your time are, you know, yes. to, to peer back at something like that. Yes, I'm fascinated by reading old <laughs> things and listening to old things and listening, uh, observing the sensibilities of previous eras, sometimes with horror. Uh, but <laughs> I, I try to keep my like being horrified to a minimum, because then you're not really experiencing things. But it's quite eye opening. One should keep one's horror to a minimum because one is almost certainly guilty of, of equally ridiculous things from the perspective of the future. Yes. And I should also note that the word one, once you start down the, that road, it immediately becomes unsustainable. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> one should, one, 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 it becomes unlistenable. I, and I find often, I find often that I will resort to the use of the word one when I'm simply being too cowardly to use the word I. Uh, right, right, if right. One should do this. No, I think you should do this. <laughs> That's right. This brings us, I think, to the issue of linguistic correctness and what David Foster Wallace called snoots or syntactic nudniks of our times, those who write the aggrieved letters into publishing houses, and how in reality that's not at all what your job is. There is no absolute that you are hewing to. No. It's my job when I'm copy editing a manuscript. The most important thing is to, as I often say, to try to get into the author's head and to do to a manuscript what the author would have done had the author had five more minutes with each paragraph and hadn't already read each paragraph 576 times. Right. And you do that process. And what you are trying to do is you are trying to enhance. You are trying to make every sentence the best possible version of itself that it can be, not to impose all sorts of notions of what you think is correct that are unhelpful and unnecessary. I do have many notions of what's correct. I like to think that most of them have to do with the notion of consensus, what okay. we all think is correct. And that notion of consensus is what allows you to correct people's spelling, to correct people's grammar, to note that they have a subject-verb agreement problem. That's consensus. We all agree to these things. Right. But I don't go into the writing of a novelist who has a penchant every now and then for using a comma splice, which is to say a comma holding together two sentences where a semicolon or a period might be more, I'm making air quotes, you can't see them, <laughs> might be more appropriate. We'll include them in the show notes. Thank you. <laughs> if that novelist likes to use a comma splice to convey a kind of maybe sort of rushing thought. Right. Truly, so much of copy editing is listening to your writer. Emily Dickinson's copy editor would have had to accept the rampant use of M dashes all, right. all over the place, or maybe push back gently now and then. And as 
her edit, if I'm remembering this correctly, as her editors did, maybe that was her family? I, I don't know. Who, whoever was preparing the poems for publication early on, not only was in there changing Emily's dashes, but rewriting text to make it more conventional. And, and oh, wow. over time, the poems have been restored to the way she wrote them. And the thing is, when you're editing or copy editing an obvious and apparent genius, you kind of sit back <laughs> and you watch what the person is doing and you just help them. There is this fussy impulse that one sees and it happens on, you know, it happens on social media a lot. I see, you know, somebody writes a post and then there's always that one, typically it's a guy who comes along and is like, if I may be so bold as to point out and then cannot resist correcting, yeah, the split infinitive or whatever it might be. I don't know. What do you make of that? That it doesn't seem to have anything to do with good writing in the end. No, it it only has to do with a tendency to want to control other control people. and judge. <laughs> um, I mean, the thing is, as a copy editor, I do have a somewhat conservative impulse that essentially involves protecting writers from being picked on hmm. for no good reason. Hmm. So I will tend to, on occasion, offer a more conventional construction, or at least to suggest that this particular construction that the writer is offering is, is a little outre. And maybe you don't want to do that, but maybe you do. I think that if a writer wants to irritate a reader, a writer should do it on purpose. I mean, this brings us back to what you were saying in the beginning about the distinction between speech and writing. In speech, we don't have time always to think through the exact word choice and word order and so on. And we are also, our brains are very vulnerable to these kind of fads of language, the, 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 these memes of language that just kind of come in. And you were talking, what were you saying? There was a period when everyone was writing tang and the word tang. Oh, yes. That um, was, it was actually, um, actually, 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 that was one of my copy editor's contributions. Oh, okay. Because I, I was saying that when I was copy editing back in the 90s, you couldn't swing a cat without hitting the word inchoate. And I hate inchoate. that word when, when, so much. When I, when I finally got around to understanding Faulkner as an adult, they had had us read Faulkner back in eighth grade. We were trying to read Sound and the Fury, and it made absolutely no sense to me at all. But as a young adult, I revisited Faulkner and started to understand him. I started underlining every time he used the word inchoate or nascent. Right. These things coming into being. It's a concept that he's obviously obsessed with, but there comes a point where you have to say, Bill, that's a lot of inchoate. I mean, yes. he's a genius. Yes. One of the things that I'm particularly mindful of as a copy editor, and I have <laughs> found that my, I have found that authors are appreciative of this thing is, I am very aware of your pet words. Right. And when certain very distinctive words show up for the second time in five pages or the third time, I will point it out. I remember that I once worked over the course of a number of books with a writer who was so very fond of always having his characters murmur that <laughs> right. I started the first time one came up in the manuscript, I would say, okay, here's our first murmur. And then I would mark them all off. I didn't even wait. I mean, I didn't even wait to see whether or not they were piling up, just start marking them. And of course, he then confessed to me that since he knew I was going to do it, 
He never stopped himself. <laughs> and he would, he, he'd get rid of half of them. It's nice when you get to work with an author repeatedly. In my department, where I serve as copy chief and managing editor, and I have a staff of production editors who are all supervising the books individually. And we have a lot of writers at Random House who write for us repeatedly. Some are the, the book a year writers, the, that tends to be writers of, of thrillers and romantic comedies and thing, things like that. But sometimes it's more like every few years, oh, here's this writer with this, with, you know, with his or her new book. And I try to keep that consistency, the consistency of the production editor and the writer. Uh -huh. And the production editors then will attempt to hire the same copy editors. That makes sense, yeah. And, and it's a lovely sort of continuity. And the, the few writers that I've had the opportunity to work with more than once, you truly begin to get this kind of lovely mind meld going mm. where I can hear what the writer is doing so distinctly. I've gotten, I've almost internalized the writer's voice. And so the value in paying attention to these things is not about being correct or showing up with your grammatical tie on so much as it is about mindfulness, to use a much overused word, of what you're doing and what you're trying to say and of what effect it will be likely having on the reader. That's exactly it. It's about intention. It's about clarity. It is about helping a writer to communicate to the reader what the writer intends and that it shouldn't get buried under misdirection of bad word choice or punctuation that might have been polished a little bit better. I think that my number one rule about copy editing and, and making good sentences is if a reader is reading a sentence and has to, at the halfway point or beyond, go back to the beginning of the sentence to start over again because a bad word choice or a bad piece of punctuation made the reader think that something else was being said, Right. then that's not a good sentence. This does not apply to, say, Charles Dickens or Henry James and, and the incredibly long sentence, which modern readers might stumble against simply because they're not used to it. That was the rhythm of the time. Right. And, and I also think that, I, I mean, to be honest, I, I, find, <laughs> I find the convolutions of James's writing a little difficult. A little much. <laughs> uh, but Dickens, I find, is a master of clarity. Either that or I just like him so much. I, love, I, I love him too. Yeah. And I would agree. But depending on the book, you know, there can be these really interminable sentences. They're still so entertaining and right. so colorful that- He has it. such fun writing. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> whatever it is that I may think about the sort of regularity of punctuation, I would never try to apply to him because he just, he loves his punctuation. He loves his dashes and his exclamation points. And when they give writers that advice, you know, write only if you have no choice but to write. I, Dickens is who comes to mind. That, yeah. that, that was a writer, if ever there was one. Yeah. So I thought it might be fun before we get to the second part of the show where we do the surprise video clips. One fun part of your book or several fun chapters really are where you are pointing out common things that people forget or don't realize in spelling and in constructions. I wonder if you wanted to just pull a couple of those out of the air and test me on them because I, I'm sure I'll get them wrong, but maybe not. I will say that some of the spelling ones in particular surprised me. I thought I was a master speller and a few of these got me. Yeah. 
All right. So, for instance, if you have a if you have a rough spot on your finger, one mm. of those one of those rough hard patches. Okay. How, how do you spell that? Callus. Okay. Yes. So I'm going to say C A L L U S. Yes. And then it's O U S if I'm being cruel and rough and exactly. Mean. Yeah. C A L L U S is the noun, and C A L L O U S is the is the adjective. Yes. Very good. <laughs> Very good. Yes. Um. <laughs> The letter paper that you write on. Oh, sure. Okay. That one was drilled into me by my my very grammatically precise mother. Stationary is with an E if you're writing uh, and with an A if you're standing still. Yes. Um, and to trot out the joke that I always trot out about people trying to remember. Oh, for instance, people trying to remember the difference between supine and prone. Ooh, that, that I'm supine and prone. Okay. Pr first of all, both of those are probably overused in erotic novels. I'm yes. imagining. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, but I don't. I don't know. Yes. Um, supine is lying on your back. Prone is lying on your stomach. Okay. Almost everybody will reach for the word prone for anybody who's lying down. Ah. The way you're supposed to remember which one is which is that if you are lying supine, you are lying on your spine. Ah. But my ongoing joke is that the problem with mnemonic devices for spelling is I can't remember them. <laughs> <laughs> also, the thing that tricks, trips people up all the time is uh, when you're talking about giving someone free reign to make their own decisions, to run their own office, you spell that. Okay, I want to say R-E-I-G-N, like I, they're reigning over... And is that yet, wrong? That's wrong. Because when you're giving a somebody... A rein like a horse. Like a horse. R-E-I-N. Right. Ah. So you're not, you're not holding the reins really tight. So you're giving, mm. you're giving a person free reign. Mm. Um, okay. Last one. If somebody finally gets what he has coming to him... Oh, so, so comeuppance? Well, no. Come, well, comeuppance is a great word. No, he's getting his just... Just desserts. Right. So that's... Is it deserts or, or desserts? Well... It's what he deserves. So yes. that's a single E. Yes? I mean S rather. Yes, exactly. Single it's D it's it's D -E -S -E just desserts. D E S E R T S. It's not two S's because he's just getting He's not getting cake. dessert. Yeah. Right. He's getting he's what getting he what, deserves. He getting, he's getting what he deserves. Nice. So yes. So, so I got two out of two out of three, maybe, or was it two out of four? I or don't know you got you got him. <laughs> you right. got him. All right. It's it's sad that they don't give the copy chief a cool hat. Do you not? Do you not? Do, there is no such thing, right? That's a no. Shame. Unfortunately, and the thing is, I have a colleague. I have a colleague who he he's the deputy publisher, and I was thinking, how cool to be a deputy. And then he always says to me, because I'm the chief. I'm the copy chief. He's like, how cool to be a chief, right? So that, yes. that is cool. We don't have titles like that in media. So now. We will do the second part of the show, which is not as much a game show as what we just did, I think, but these are just thought starters. There are short video clips from Big Things Video Interview Archives, and I haven't seen them, and Benjamin hasn't seen them, and we'll, we'll just watch them and take the conversation where it goes. Cool. All right. Okay, they're playing softball with us here. This first one is Corey Stamper, who I'm sure, sure. you have heard of. Yes. yes. Corey Stamper is from Merriam-Webster, and she is a lexicographer. Yes. And, this and she one, is not to be trifled with. No. So this is called Four Incredible Words with No English Equivalent. All right. So uh, one of the things you need to be a lexicographer is uh, something called Sprachgefühl, 
which is a word we stole into German, and it means a feeling for language. So Sprachgefühl is the thing that tells you, for instance, that uh, the sentence, the cat are yowling, is grammatically wrong, but the crowd are loving it is just very British. And so Sprachgefühl is a great word because it's, the Germans have, Germans have words for everything. Um, and one of, and so we stole Sprachgefühl in with a, a bunch of other German words that also describe these things that it's just great to have one word for. So one word that German has that uh, <laughs> describes this great, great thing we don't necessarily have a word for in English. The German word is Kummerspeck, and it refers, it's a word sort of for flab, like the weight that you gain. But the, the words literally mean grief bacon in German. And so grief bacon is the sadness you feel <laughs> at having all this flab. So Kummerspeck is one. Um, let me think. There's a Danish word, uh, hyge, I think is how you say it. H-Y-G-G-E, uh, which refers to the coziness of home. Uh, we don't have that in English, but it's, Hyge is also this very broad cultural phenomenon. So uh, hand-knit socks are Hyge and fireplaces are Hyge. Um, oh, um, so another, another word is, it's a Finnish word uh, from Finland and it's Sisu. Sisu is uh, sort of generally refers to determination, but determination doesn't quite capture it. It's a spirit of, of determination and uh, sort of quiet. Uh, Sisu is sort of like determination or uh, the best that I could possibly come up with is piss and vinegar, but in a very quiet and Scandinavian way, so. Yeah, I have to say that the publishing industry has almost ruined Hige for me. I've reached like Hige saturation with all the cutesy Hige winter themed books. One of the <laughs> things about our world, capital O, capital W, yeah. is that there isn't anything that pops up that doesn't get latched onto and then I suppose to mix a to mix a metaphor beaten to death as quickly as possible. You know, I mean, the joke of the word artisanal. It's yeah. like, it, it was nice for a minute, and then everything's artisanal. And it's, I don't want to hear about it anymore. Can we please just go back to handmade? And I feel like we have Brooklyn and marketing more to blame, maybe, for artisanal than you guys. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I'm happy to lay the blame someplace else. <laughs> you know, as, as one is happy to lay the blame on business. I was saying this yesterday, and I always want to preface this by saying, I love my colleagues in HR, um, <laughs> but there is a certain kind of human resources speak, and oh, there's yeah. certain business speak. And I think that there's nothing wrong, and there are many things wonderful about coming up with new words or taking extant words and sort of freshening them up a little bit. Listicle, for example, is one that you like very exactly. much, and I if understand it, that. If it does something that no other word really does, and if it really brings something to the table, then make place for it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, couple, throw out a couple other new li I mean, list, Listicle is gorgeous. That's great. Regift. Regift, yeah. That's just brilliant. I always say that if you are in the word business and you are not making up a new word, Right. Once every couple of months, then you're not really playing the game. And millennials and maybe Gen Z, I don't know, you know, at this point, who's who. Neologism is a 
widespread practice now and that is often done very consciously and with great humor and irony. I marvel at it. I mean, I spend a lot of time on Twitter. And in fact, I credit Twitter with helping me find my writer's voice. Because mm -hmm. when I started working on the manuscript, I found myself trying to take this elevated, erudite tone, and I was so boring. The copy chief tone. Yeah. And at a certain <laughs> point, I realized that what I was doing on Twitter, which was trying to be really punchy, really funny, get in and get out, because that's what you have to do when you're on Twitter. It's like, dude, that's your voice. Right. That's your voice. Try to, try to do that. People like that. People seem to respond well to that. So yeah. it is one of the reasons why the book is made up of so many little nuggets of information, because people like that. I mean, should I ever get around to writing a novel, and, and I, I do think about that from time to time, then I'm perfectly willing to think that I'm going to embrace my inner Charles Dickens and just write long, flowing passages. But this sort of book, to me, really demands what I think I brought to it, which was make the point, move on, make the point, move on, make the point, move on. Oh, I totally agree. And there are lots of very specific and practical pieces of advice throughout, and this will work very well as a major manual of style. And, and writing for yeah. people. You say, I think, in the preface that there are the elements of style, and so, so many of these have been written that you weren't setting out to write kind of the definitive, <laughs> comprehensive guide. Absolutely. I knew from the very beginning that any attempt to write an exhaustive book would be exhausting, and I couldn't <laughs> do it. And moreover, and more important, there are other books. To say that my book is the only book you could possibly need to be a writer is like saying, I don't need to have a dictionary on my desk. It's like, <laughs> right, of course right. I have a dictionary on my desk. <laughs> right. And just to plug uh, a wonderful book that has been my Bible for as long as I've been working in publishing, and it's out of print, but you can easily find copies online. There's a spectacular book called Words into Type. Okay. You know, some of which is very sort of into typography and things like that and the ins and outs of publishing me mechanics of construction that are irrelevant to, to most people. But the center section on grammar and punctuation is glorious. Okay. And it is the book that I will reach for when I'm stumped on something. And there is some really fussy stuff in the English language that I never get right. I write quite a lot, and I find myself again and again saying, does that damn period go inside the quotation marks or outside of it? And, you know, you get into some of that in the book and using semicolons in series where you have things that have commas within them. And, and I think one thing that's very important for all writers is if you've tied yourself up into some sort of grammatical syntactical knot and you can't figure out whether something is correct or not, drop the issue of whether it's correct or not and rewrite the sentence in a way that you're comfortable with. Walk away from the knot. Don't try to untie it. Write at your own level. I mean, write with aspiration, but write the way you know how to write. Let's go back to HR speak. Sure. You know, we, we all write a, a billion emails and one finds, one finds oneself. <laughs> I find myself writing now sometimes saying things like circle back in an email. I will circle back to you and I won't let myself do it. If I see it, I just won't let myself do it 
But there are these shorthands that emerge, and that's why. I mean, it's because of efficiency. I mean, it's it's business speak. That's you know that's sure. where the notion of granularity comes from, right? Which I still Let's don't get quite remember what it means, and I don't ever want to know what it means. And essentially, it's like, are we talking about mustard? Because if we're, <laughs> then I'm okay with it. <laughs> business has always done that sort of thing, and if you go back to, I it, it must be Billy Wilder's film, The Apartment which isn't, again, if I'm remembering this correctly, an endless string of wise jokes, business-wise, meeting-wise, salary-wise. <laughs> and I find that hilarious. And so I will, I do that every now and then. But it, it's the thing about, it's about doing... That's intentionality. Do, You're right, doing it doing with irony. And, and doing something with a wink. For fun, yeah. You know, um, the one verb that has crept into my eyesight that every time I see it, I will pick up the hammer and do everything I can to mash it to bits, <laughs> is the verb onboard, as in what that which one does to new employees. Well, it's you know what's on... even worse, offboard, because you're firing you're, somebody. Oh, you... I ha... <laughs> Let it be known for the record that I'm sitting here and my jaw just went down. <laughs> Because I hadn't. That's a I thing. suppose that was inevitable. <laughs> well, that's terrible. Offboarding. You're firing someone. Yes. You know how to offboard. People are writing books about this. That's 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 <laughs> that's not very good. But. And the thing is, it's so it's so tone deaf. I mean, I don't know how you can say the use the verb onboard with a straight face when we have the verb waterboard sitting right next to it in the <laughs> English language. It does not sound fun to be onboarded. No, so. no, it doesn't. So, shall we see what the second surprise yeah. quip is yeah. and where that takes us? Yes. Awesome. And uh, am I responding to? The, did oh, I respond to well, the way actually, I was supposed yeah, to respond let's make to sure, it? Well, there is no supposed to. But okay. Let's good. make sure we've done Corey's thing justice. Maybe like return to it briefly. I mean, I do love all those words she mentioned. I do too. And German, of course, is famous for for, for that sort of thing. But the thing is, there's. There's sort of no reason why we can't do that. And we do do it. You know, we, we, right. we do coin things. And Mansplaining. Of course, exactly. Which is a wonderful word. Yes. <laughs> no, so we know, we know how to do that, too. Yeah. We know how to do that, too. But, of course, the, the Germans are famous for it. Well, and, and it's just so poetic. I mean, grief bacon is, is That's gorgeous. wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> that, that is really gorgeous. Sisu from Finnish, meaning sort of like quietly persistent, made me think of Sisyphus. And I wondered whether it came oh. from that, you know, and, because uh, he certainly was quietly persistent. Exactly. <laughs> and they, you know what? One Maybe. wonders. Uh, but the other one, uh, Hugo. Yeah. Did it, if I said that correctly. And you know what? It makes me very happy to hear Corey question whether or not she's pronouncing a word properly. Because one thing that I often say, and I found this very much when I had the pleasure of recording the audiobook of my own book. Right. All the words that I write with confidence mm. that I found out once I was trying to say them out loud. It was like, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce that word. <laughs> so we would go to Merriam-Webster and we would go to the talking dictionary and we would, we would, we would get the pronunciation so that, I could, so that I could say things correctly. I mean, that's the thing that I think is so important to remember and that I think is clear in, in your book that those people, the ones that are pouncing on other people's grammar online, they're preying on a fear, unconsciously probably, preying on a fear that we all have, which is that like we don't really totally know the language, you yes. know, because nobody does. Yeah. And But that we all kind of need to make our peace with that and then 
just be thoughtful about it. And if we have a question, go look it up. And then sometimes just recognize it's my language, damn it. And that's the decision I'm making. And, and I mean, and I can't, I can't remember the first time I ran across the notion of never make fun of anybody for mispronouncing a word because it tends to mean that the person learned the word reading it. Right. And you don't, pounce on somebody for that sort of thing. I mean, I remember I had the opportunity to give to a, a younger person of my acquaintance a copy of a particular James Joyce book, and uh, he read it, and he then subsequently told me how much he was loving reading De Bliners. And I thought, you're so sweet. <laughs> and I wasn't, I, I was like, don't correct him, don't correct him, don't correct him. Happily at a certain point, and I like to think it wasn't because I was making faces at him, um, he said, is that how you say it? And I'm like, actually, actually, it's Dubliners. One writing teacher once told me, I guess she was making fun of, of a pretty girl in her in the college she used to teach at who was you know a younger student dating one of the professors and who came into a party one day into the middle of a, a, a party of graduate literature students and said, picked up a book off the shelf and said, what is this book useless that everybody is reading? And it was Ulysses. That story gives me all the feelings. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel mad at that teacher for sharing that joke. I feel sorry for that young woman and <laughs> all kinds of stuff. When I was in my... <laughs> 20s, I guess. I think that I associated wit and intelligence with a level of contempt. Condescension, putting people down. Yeah. And I like to think I got past that. And um, so should we all. So should we all. I mean, are any of us ever satisfied with the person we've been our entire lives? I rather doubt it. I've really tried and, the, and 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 it has it has a lot to do with being online a lot and meeting a lot of people and and people taking me seriously as the copy chief it's like be a kinder person be a better person be be more welcoming be more embracing be less furious i mean um, to say something that's maybe almost too obvious like you know to the extent that we are doing that to other people we are not allowing ourselves the leeway to like grow and learn in the areas where we don't know things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, be best as our first lady likes to say. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's, let's see what the second sure. and final of our surprise videos is. Sure. So this is James Patterson, the author, and it is titled the huge social impact of learning to love books. Cool. There's a program that I'm involved with at the University of Florida. Right now, Florida, the percentage of kids reading at grade level is 43%. The best in the country is Massachusetts at 62%. So nobody should be standing up and going, look at our state, we're 62%. So it's not good anywhere. University of Florida has been working on a program for five years up in the Gainesville area. Not Gainesville itself, because there are too many professors, kids in the town but outside, and they have it up into the 80s. So I've been working with them, and we went to the state legislature in April, and we met with the head of the Senate and, and several senators and the, and the House, and they gave us two counties in Florida, and they said, if you can get, you don't have to get 80s, but if you get good numbers, you get numbers in the 60s, we will take that program across the state. 
which would be spectacular. It's a win-win-win for the kids, it's a win for the teachers, it's a win for the state. Everybody, everybody wins. And you know, when I go and I talk to when I well, when I talk to the to the to the legislature, uh, and and when I go in and talk to big groups of librarians or teachers, I'll always say I'm here to save lives, and I really want people to get that in their heads because that's what's happening. I go to uh, sometimes now to, um, to to prisons, and you know primarily you, what you'll find there are a lot of uh, uh, relatively young. Uh, 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 African-American kids, and most of whom didn't read at all in high school, or almost none, weren't good readers. Now they read like crazy, because it's the only thing they can do. And the irony is, is incredible. Most of them are pretty good readers now. Had they learned, had we you know, got that percentage of kids reading at grade level up higher, to the point where when they got to high school they were competent readers, they might have stayed with it. But if you get to high school, you get to you know, ninth grade and you're really like Abraham, you know, you can't, you can't keep up. You go, I can't do this, it's not relevant, I can't do it, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna stay here, I'm not gonna stay in school, uh, it's, which is a disaster. And that's what I, I really mean it when I say you know, that, that we can save lives, and li I'm thousands of lives. If we do this thing in Florida, we will save thousands of lives in Florida. And any state that can solve the problem is going to save thousands of lives. And plus, you're going to improve the, the economics of the state. Because you're going to have that many more people who can go out into the workforce, that have choices. Um, you know, I, I mean, that's important. It's, it's hugely important thing. That was really, I mean, that was beautiful. And I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here really sort of touched and move because I'm, ha I'm, I'm having feelings and I'm having memories and I'm listening to what he's saying about the, about the importance of this. And, and I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about how when I was really, really young, um, and I, I've quizzed my mom about this and I, you know, I asked her about like, how did, when did you teach me to read? When did that happen? And she said, I never taught you to read. Hmm. She said, I read to you. And then you just started doing it, huh? And like before you were in school, I guess. yeah. And and books for me were and have always been the most magical thing. And and the very first thing that I owned that officially had my name on it was my library card. And we lived in Jackson Heights, Queens, uh. and and I remember my mom taking me to the library maybe once a week, and you know it's like four books in, four books out, four books in, four books out. All I ever wanted to do was read, and and I was encouraged in that. So I had an advantage, and I've had an advantage my whole life, at least insofar as that is concerned. And anything that anyone can do, and I admire people like Patterson who make this a, who make this a mission. I was about to use a word that I have broken myself of the habit of using, who make it a crusade. So we don't like that word <laughs> no, anymore. No, because then you're just going and slaughtering right. Muslims, you're, you know, yes, which is not a good Killing Saracens wherever yeah, right, we find right, them, right. so we don't do that no. anymore. <laughs> um, people who can make a mission out of that that's wonderful because I, I do think, and not merely in a sort of sentimental, isn't reading wonderful, I'm Francy from a tree grows in Brooklyn. <laughs> right, it's right, like, right. it's important. It's how we make our way into a world where we are expected to communicate effectively. And a lot of that, yes, is speaking, but we learn what we learn from books. And if you are raised to believe that each book is this 
treasure chest of information and right. joy, it just makes your life so much, so much richer. I'm going to join you in preaching to the choir by saying that it's so many things. I can think of fewer other activities when I was a kid that had such a level of focus and absorption as, as reading did. I feel like that isn't as likely to happen with a YouTube video. So there's that, there's just that deep, almost like meditative absorption in somebody else's thoughts. There's what you get out of being in the rhythm of somebody else's thoughts by reading their prose. And then as you say, there's all the information and there's just all those doors that literacy itself unlocks. I mean, Reading is like nothing else. I love the movies. I love going to the theater. I love watching television. But what you have to, what you bring to a book when you're reading it, think about the thing that I think none of us really think about all that often. It's like, I mean, like you're reading Bleak House and, and you're reading and you're all caught up in the story of Lady Deadlock and Esther Summerson and you're seeing it and you can see it. It's like, it's words on a page. Mm -hmm. It's typing. But you are bringing to life, you are collaborating with the writer on bringing it to real vivid life. That's... It's magic. It's magic. There's always this talk about the literacy situation and like what is happening with this generation. I think it's very hard to get a handle on. And I don't think we have reliable stats on like what percentage of people were literate 50 years ago in America. It's very easy to kind of look around at the screens and say nobody is reading any. I mean, I, I suppose you're in the publishing industry, so you would know whether like fewer books are being sold over the time you've been, what, you've yeah, been well, there for 20 years. Le yeah, lately apparently, I guess people are reading. I mean, there's a lot of books and there's a lot of books going out there to the point where, and I'm not telling tales out of school because there was a very good article in the Times about it and, and very nicely and accurately reported. The demand for books had completely outstripped the ability of the printers to print the books and everybody was getting behind. And a lot of it had to do with trying to keep up with the demand for Michelle Obama's book. Okay. And what happened was that a number of books that were to have been published in January and February had their on-sale dates shifted out a little bit because it's like we can't get the books in fast enough. And I can speak of this firsthand because my book, which is delightfully going on sale January 29th, wherever better books are sold, was to have gone on sale January 22nd. <laughs> and I got- Wow, literally because, because of demand and- Yeah, and I got, you know, my editor called me up into his office. And of course, the entire experience, by the way, of being published by your- by the house you work for. Yes, that's surreal. That's maybe a subject mostly of interest to me, but it's peculiar. I'm interested. <laughs> um, it, it's it's quite a thing, particularly when you're also your own copy chief and managing editor. You copy edited your no, own? No, no, that's but, wrong. All right, yeah, well, all right, but that. working working backward. <laughs> um, no, I get called up and I have a conversation with my editor and, and our deputy publisher. And it's like, um, we need to... And I was like, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. It's like one week's not going to kill me, hmm. you know. Is that the industry, I'm just trying to be realistic here, like had they scaled back the presses due to lower expectation and then they got a run on the presses or is that just same capacity as always now overrun with demand? Yeah. That. That. Okay. That. Crazy. Um, but... So, you so know, see, reading is not dead, people. No, not at all, not at all. So, you know, so, but uh, the, the thing about being published by your own house yeah. is you have to sort of try to establish new sort of boundaries. 
and be fair to your colleagues. I mean, for instance, editors should not be burdened with having their authors wandering around the halls at will right? and like, popping by whenever they want to <laughs> burst into tears. Hey, Bob, I couldn't sleep last night because right. I just had this thought about page yeah. 152. Yeah. So, I mean, I, was, <laughs> I, I set it up with my editor and I ended up having, for various reasons, I had two brilliant editors before the book was finally finished. But it was always, as managing editor and copy chief, I can stick my head in your office door whenever I feel like it, as long as the door is open. But if the author wants to fetch and moan and cry, he calls and makes an appointment. Yes. And will marketing soon be very sick of you? Um, I'm <laughs> <laughs> the marketing people and the publicity people at Random House are so good at what they do. And I have been observing <laughs> this for decades, watching the machine do the job that it does on behalf of authors and marveling at it. I mean, it's like, I mean, books are wonderful, but you have to get them out into the world. Um, and you have to get them, you have to make sure that people know that they're there. Well, now they're doing it for me. And so you have no complaints. I have I have no complaints. I mean, of course, even if I had complaints, I wouldn't tell you. That's true. Yes. Actually, yes. Yes. Because right. one does want to keep one's job. Yes. But I have no complaints. I am being so <laughs> beautifully taken care of. But the, I mean, the funny thing, really, though, being that every now and then I'm you know I'm called into a, a meeting and and we're having conversations about intention and this that and the thing and I'm I'm being asked what I want. I'm being asked my opinion. I'm being asked my desire because I'm the author. And it's like, I'm not used to that. I'm generally used to people telling me what to do. And, and it's, it's nice to be asked. It's nice to be asked. I'm having, I'm having the adventure of a lifetime. It's, it's great. I'm excited for you, Benjamin. You. This sounds awesome. I, I think of it as like how Yoda every once in a while actually has to pull out the lightsaber. I feel <laughs> like you've pulled out the lightsaber. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's great. I'm having, a, I'm, ha I'm, having, I'm having the best time. That brings us, um, brings me reluctantly to the end of this episode. Is there one little nugget of uh, English curiosity that we should be left with? Um, should we not say relatable? I don't like relatable. No, I think we should go out and have the most fun that we possibly can with our writing. And if you're doing it, if you're in the business of doing it, whether it's you know the stuff that you do in the office or the stuff that you're doing because you're blogging, find the joy in it. Yeah. I don't mean to sound... No, that's right. That's where yeah. it is for the readers too. They, yeah. If you, if, yeah. Find the joy in it. If you're not having a good time writing it, I dare say nobody's going to have a good time reading it. So just enjoy it. Benjamin Dreyer, thanks so much for being on Think Again. This was great. Thank you. How's everyone doing out there? Up here in New York City, it is cold. I'm going around dressed like a Star Trek character, sporting hideous green non-Newtonian base layers designed for skiing on Mount Everest. It's a bit of overkill, but hey, I'm my mother's son. No friend of the cold. Whatever the weather, I hope you're doing okay, and I want to hear from you. Please feel free to write me at jason at bigthink.com with whatever's on your mind. If you want me to consider sharing it here, let me know. I'll be back next week with something completely different, and I hope you'll be here too.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.